Thank you for listening to the podcast of Bible Baptist Church. Please visit our website at www.southbaybbc.org for more information. So Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, For even hereunto were ye called. For even hereunto were ye called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. If you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you have been called to service. It's not enough to trust Jesus Christ by faith. It's not enough to own a Bible and read that word every day and to pray. You have to put some uh, work to that faith. And Jesus Christ himself came and gave us an example that we should follow in his steps. That's what Peter is telling us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And while Jesus carried out his work, the Bible says he did no sin. Neither was guile found in his mouth. He did no sin because he is the living God. The Bible tells us that God became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. We have sinned, but by God's grace, the blood of Jesus Christ covers our sin if we only ask. There was no guile found in his mouth, no ugly words, no gossip, no slander, no bitterness. Only a holy God, only a A man who's all God and all man could have borne our sins on the cross at Calvary. Verse 23, we see the example of Christ that when he was reviled, when he was mocked, when he was talked about, he did not revile or mock or talk about others in return. He maintained his own counsel, if you will. That's a recommendation for us as we uh, learn lessons in human relations from our Lord Jesus Christ. Often, we might get mocked by people in our own household. We might get reviled by people at work if we take a break at lunch and we open our Bibles up and we'd rather read our Bibles at lunch as opposed to uh, hanging out and talking, telling dirty jokes or talking about the latest television show or what's going on in popular culture. You might get mocked as that holy roller. You might get mocked as that Bible thumper. You might get mocked as that born-again believer. But Jesus was mocked, but he reviled not. And he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. So he suffered for our sins. We know the story. We've seen the movies. We've read the Bible. We've heard the sermons preached. But we have no concept of the suffering that Jesus endured during that period uh, before his passion. We have no idea of the, 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 uh, revile thing, the vile things that occurred to our Lord uh, on the day that he suffered his passion. But he suffered, and he suffered, but he suffered willingly, but he threatened not. The Bible says he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. Wouldn't have needed 10,000 angels. One would have done the job. You see what two did at Sodom and Gomorrah. But he held himself because he had to die for your sins. And he committed himself to him that judges righteously. The him is God. And we'll see that God the Father sent God the Son on a mission, and that mission was to redeem to himself all who would believe, who his own self, in verse 24, bear our sins in his own body on the cross, on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes. Remember, he was whipped. That bloody, those bloody stripes heals us of our sins. That's what Peter is telling us here, that Jesus himself emptied himself of his godliness, the majesty that he embraced when he was in heaven before time was even created, before the heavens and the earth were created. Jesus emptied himself of that part of his godhood. We have no concept in our five, sometimes six senses of exactly what Jesus gave up. 
before he came to earth. But he was king of heaven. He was king of earth. The angels bowed down and adored him. And he existed before time began. He is still the king of kings and lord of lords. But before he came to earth, he had to empty himself of that majesty. He maintained uh, his omniscience. He maintained his omnipotence. He was able to walk on water. He was able to heal the sick. He was able to raise the dead. But in order to relate to you, in order to relate to me, he suffered hunger. He suffered betrayal from his friends. He suffered the loss of a loved one. Everything that we endure in our personal lives, Jesus Christ endured in the flesh so that you could relate to him. We have no excuse to not follow Jesus Christ. We can't say he doesn't understand me. He does understand you. Now, we may look around our room and say, well, our friends, our families, our co-workers, the folks we go to school with, no one understands me, but Jesus understands you. By whose stripes, the Bible says, you were healed. So our Lord came and gave himself for the sins of many. He came to give us an example of what it means to be a servant. We live in a world where Servants are looked down upon. You see the way that people who wait on tables are treated when you go to restaurants. I try to give a big tip, biggest tip I possibly can, because that's hard work out there for eight hours, walking around on your feet all day, dealing with people, oh, my soda's too warm, it needs more ice, you know, bring it back. Treating people, you know, like they're just pieces of dirt or dust. Well, it's an honor to be a servant. It's an honor to live a life of humility because that's a life that God will ultimately glorify. And we see that in the example of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example. That's why his life is in the scriptures. It's an example to us how to conduct ourselves in this present world. Paul tells us over in Romans chapter 6, verse 18, that those who trust Jesus Christ are called to a life of service. In Romans chapter 6, verse 18, as it shows on the screen, the Bible says, Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Let me hang my hat right there for a second. We were set free from sin because of Jesus Christ. We were not set free from sin because of our own intellect. We are not set free from sin because of our philosophy. We are not set free from sin because of psychology. We're not free from sin because of our personal opinions. We're not free from sin because of our good behavior. We're free from sin because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And through him, we become servants of righteousness, called out to live a holy life. Down in verse 20, the Bible says, For when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. And every one of us in this room are servants of sin. And that are was changed to were, the moment you trusted Jesus Christ. When you were born into this world, you were born a servant of sin. If anyone has a baby, if anyone has a two-year-old or a five-year-old, a daughter, cousin, niece, what's the first word they learn? Usually, dada. What's the second word they learn? Ma. What's the third word they learn? No. You moms and dads know that. Pick it up. No. Eat your broccoli. No, no. That's all a part of human nature. That's a part of that original sin. We don't have to teach human beings how to be rebellious. We don't have to teach human beings how to be dishonorable. We don't have to teach human beings how to be disobedient. Why? Because we are born in sin. But through Jesus Christ, the Bible says, 
uh, we were free from righteousness. However, in verse 21, it goes on, Paul goes on and says, What fruit had ye then in those things whereof you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. All that means is that there was no fruit born when we were living a sinful life. Nothing came out of the good. For those of us who used to go out on Friday night looking for sin to fill that emptiness inside, you had to go out on Saturday night and do it all over again. And then you didn't go to church on Sunday morning because you were too busy trying to recover from the sin that you participated in on Friday and Saturday. And then when the work week was over, you started it over again on Thursday night, Friday night, and Saturday night. Some people did it for years, trying to fill that emptiness inside. There are things that you would not stand up here and tell the rest of the church about because it's what the Bible describes as those things whereof you are now ashamed. But we all know what it was. We clean up pretty good. Put on a coat and tie, man, we look pretty sharp. And the young people think that we never had a a foul day in our lives. And you young people, you clean up pretty good. (laughs) And you come to church and we look at you and say, man, that that looks like a real stand-up Christian there. But you know within a sinner's heart. You know what's going on in your life. You know the sins that you've committed. But not only do you know, but God knows. And if God knows, then he expects you to do something about it. And we look down to verse 22. The Bible says, but now being made free from sin and become servants to God, I call to service, that's what we're talking about. You have your fruit unto holiness and the end, the everlasting life. So if God cleans us up internally, washes away all our sin in the blood that Jesus Christ set, it, set up for us on Calvary, then we know that we are to bear fruit unto holiness. God is calling us to live a holy and righteous life. Boy, that sounds rigid, preacher. Tap him. That sounds hard, preacher. No, it's not. Jesus said, wake him up. Jesus said that his burden is easy and his yoke is light. God has a message for us today. Preachers just don't wake up in the morning and say, this is what I think. (laughs) When a preacher gets up in the morning, we're looking for, thus saith the Lord. That's what we're looking for. And when God gives us a message, the message is specifically for you. It's for me when I prepare it. (laughs) And I see the verses and I meditate on the verses and I say, ah, yes, God is speaking to me. I need to live a holy life. But once we get behind this holy desk, we're preaching the word of God. And it's a message from heaven. And it's a message for all of us. Now being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. So we see the passages here, key words in verse 22. We become servants to God. We become servants to God. That is not a bad thing. I'd rather be a gatekeeper in the house of God any day. I'd rather be the guy that sweeps the floors in the temple of God any day just to be in his presence, just to experience his holiness. Amen? That's what this is all about. It's a call to service. It's not about walking around feeling good because we're saved and we're born again and we're not going to hell. If we have that sort of faith, then we have to have some works attached to it. And we'll get to that a little bit deeper. So we see that Paul in Romans 6, 18 and in verses 20 through 22 verifies the fact that we are called out for service. And an expectation lies in that calling. People watch what you do. People listen to what you say. When you say, they say, well, what are you doing today? Well, I'm going to church, I'm going to the morning service. Okay? That just doesn't go unheeded. 
They're watching to see if that church reflects in your speech. They're watching to see if that church reflects in your actions and in your conversation. How do I know that? Because the Bible says that man looks on the what? Outward appearance. God looks on the heart. But we criticize immediately. We go to the criticism. It's not too often that people walk up and say, man, you look wonderful today. In their mind, they're thinking, boy, where'd you get that tie? That's, that's human nature. And I've learned to live with that. But God looks on uh, uh, the uh, man's heart. Man looks on the outward appearance. So we say we, we're Christians and we have a testimony. Then it's imperative that we live that faith and live that life. That's what a part of being called to service is all about. Last night, I was at a uh, gala, a scholarship gala. And the purpose was to raise about $10,000 for scholarships for inner city city young men. So by God's grace, we raised about $18,000 to $20,000 last night. I was asked to give the opening prayer and the closing prayer. And not everybody in the room was a Christian, but that doesn't stop me. I always pray in Jesus' name. And uh, at the conclusion of the ending prayer, it was time for the party, okay? And the dance floor filled up, and they were playing all the latest hits, and people were just jamming all over the place. And a couple of men walked by and said, Reverend, how are you doing? So I knew immediately that after I gave that prayer, I was identified as a reverend. Nobody gave my background, my credentials, none of that stuff. But the minute I gave that prayer... I was identified as reverend. And going into that gala, I knew that I couldn't be seen with a glass in my hand with with two olives in it. I couldn't be seen uh, doing the Cupid shuffle. Couldn't be seen, what's that that other one? The the hobble, the bubble, what's that called? Come on, y'all, you know. (laughs) Don't know what you're talking about, preacher. (laughs) That other dance. What would they do when they, when they wobble? The wobble. Yeah you, can't be, yeah, you can't be seen doing any of that stuff. All right? So I was standing there with a couple of fraternity brothers, you know, but I was very, very careful about how I interacted last night. I was very, very careful how I was seen talking to women who weren't my wife. I wanted to make sure, you know, that there was nothing that anyone could use to criticize the name of Jesus Christ. That's all a part of that call to service. So, three things I want to look at today as we talk about our call to service as born-again believers. First is, uh, a good servant surrenders to the will of God. If you have your Bibles, John chapter 6, verse 38. It should pop up on the screen. John chapter 6, verse 38. The Bible says that, uh, for I came down, this is Jesus speaking, From heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Verse 39. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me. That of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And uh, this is the will of him that sent me. That every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Everyone that believeth and seeth the Son, seeth the Son and believeth on him, may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. A good servant surrenders to the will of God. I first uh, opened this message talking about the kenosis. That's what it is in the Greek, how God, Jesus, emptied himself and came to dwell on earth among us. 
And our Lord tells us that he surrenders his will to the will of God. We talked about the strong will that a child has. You have a strong will also. We witness strong will all the time when we're driving on L.A. freeways. You know, you're driving down the freeway, and I don't know if it ever happens to you. It happens to me all the time. But there's enough space between me and the car in front of me for another car to squeeze in there. And what's that other car do? It squeezes in there. And next thing you know, you got about a foot of space between you and a rear-end accident. Happens all the time in, in Los Angeles. Why? Because that person who squeezed in that space has a strong will. And their will and their desire is to get into that space regardless of what the consequences are. We exercise our will all the time. It's your will to be in this room today. That's why you're here. Because you made a conscious decision in your will to come here and sit here in this room and hear the message. So a good servant surrenders that part of himself or herself to God. It doesn't mean to be a robot or an automaton or artificial intelligence but it means that we need to recognize that there's a part of us that needs to surrender, not to uh, our will and our decision in life, but what God wants for us. In the, the Lord's Prayer, what, is, what does Jesus say? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus himself lived that. He showed us that a good servant surrenders to the will of God. And this passage I just read, this is from that, that famous passage where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. But he says that he came from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. So the will of him, the him is God the Father. And God the Father sent God the Son so that he could die for a poor vessel like me. I don't deserve anybody dying on my behalf. Back during uh, the Vietnam War, there was a young private named Milton Olive uh, jumped on a hand grenade uh, to save uh, the other men in his platoon. Hand grenade exploded, killed him instantly. He was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. He laid down his life for those in his platoon. He surrendered his own being and his own will for those in the platoon. And that's what Jesus did. He came down here to fulfill the will of God. God's will was for Jesus to die. That's a heavy thought. It's probably one of the most profound thoughts in the Bible. But we hear it so often, Jesus died for our sins. But do we really meditate and contemplate upon what that means and how that was accomplished? Who in this room would die for another? Raise your hand. There's one. Probably a soldier, military background. A couple back there, military guys, yeah. That might get tested one of these days. It's not to be said lightly. That might be tested one of these days. I raised my hand because I took a vow to die for you. I took a vow twice. First as a lieutenant in the United States Army to protect our country against all enemies, both foreign and domestic. Were you in the military, Bert? Okay, that's why you raised your hand. Second time I took that oath was as a... Uh, police lieutenant with the Glendale Police Department to protect our country and our state from all enemies, both foreign and domestic. I put on a bulletproof vest, put on handcuffs, carried a 45 automatic. Every night I went out into the field. I didn't know if that was going to be my last night on earth. But I went out there to protect the city of Glendale and the citizens who live there. And if that required to die, 
I was willing to do that. So I've already put foot, feet and action you know, to that oath. If you haven't taken that oath, if you haven't stood in uniform, um, consider that. You know. Are you willing? <laughs> Are you willing to go to the cross with someone in this room? Preacher might be in the pulpit this time next year. Heaven forbid somebody will come through the last back door, hold up a gun and say, renounce the name of Jesus Christ, I will put a bullet through your head. We're living in the last days. We're living in ferocious times. That has happened in the world. It's happened in Africa. It's happened in communist China. It's happened in Nazi Germany. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, famous name, Bonhoeffer, famous name, martyred by the Nazis. History is full of people who've had an arrow, a sword, a gun, a machine gun, pointed at them, pointed at their families, and commanded to renounce the name of Jesus Christ. So I'm not talking about some fantasy here. I'm talking about human history. Jesus himself had that same command laid upon him. And he willingly, willingly took on that charge, on that mantle, on that mission to die and take our places. So when we consider the death of Christ, when we consider a good servant surrendering his will to Christ, that's not something to blow by on Easter. That's something to stop, put on the brakes, and contemplate. He died for me. He died for me. That's worth taking time. Outside of these walls, during your personal time of devotion, when you're driving down the freeway, turn off uh, your CDs, turn off your radio, and think about he who died for you because he surrendered his will to do the will of God. So in this call to service, the first thing a good servant does is surrender to the will of God. Second thing a good servant does is he is obedient, or she is obedient. A good servant is obedient. Luke chapter 11, verse 28. Luke chapter 11, verse 28. And the Bible says, again, the words of Jesus, but he said, yea, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Not a lot of words there, about seven or eight. You can count them. But blessed, happy, are they that hear the word of God and keep it. We, we run all over the place trying to find happiness. We try to find happiness in attaining advanced degrees of education. We try to attain happiness by getting married and having children. And none of those things, nothing's wrong with any of those things. But we find a world that's always in search of how to be happy. And if I could just lose 25 pounds, I'd be happy, Brother Sanko. You know, we, if, I could, if I could just get, you know, uh, a Philly cheesesteak, you know, I'd be happy, boys. If I could just get that Mercedes Benz, if I could just get that BMW, if I could just, you know, get that Rolls Royce, if I could just get that house in Malibu, I'd be happy then. Really? Bible says, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Who wants a transitory happiness? I want a happiness that's eternal. Happiness is transitory. If I get that lollipop, I'm happy for as long as that lollipop exists. Then when I get down to the chocolate core, I'm happy when the sugar kicks in. But then when I start licking on that paper stick, I'm not happy anymore. 
That's what happens with happiness. <laughs> it only lasts down to the stick. But for those who hear the word of God and keep it, it's an eternal happiness that goes along with it. So if we hear what the Bible says and tells us what the Bible, the Bible tells us what to do, then we should be obedient, obedient to the word of God. We're not big on obedience today. I was talking to a school teacher yesterday at this event, and he was telling me, Brother Brooks, he said, it's, it's hard in there. And he, he's a teacher in a, a public high school. And he was saying, it's hard in there. It's changed over the last 20 years. I said, how's it changed, brother? And he says, you know, I've got to be a preacher. I've got to be a police officer. I have to be a social worker. I have to be a psychologist. And somewhere in there, I get to teach my subjects. That's how disobedient our school systems have become. And of course, those of us who were born, you know, back in the 20th century, we remember a time where if you acted up in the classroom, they would call the gym teacher. The gym teacher would always say, don't call it gym, it's physical education. Okay. And then the gym teacher would come and grab you, Hannah, and he would take you down to the locker room, shaking your head, Bert, I got you. And, he's got, and he, he would take one of those uh, styrofoam floats they use in the swimming pool, and he'd wear you out. Till the float broke. Now we said, we can't do that anymore. What'll happen? Kid will take out his smartphone, get his lawyer on the line. <laughs> and next thing you know, you're, you're on your way to the pokey. Or he'll call 911, even worse. So things, things have changed. I was talking to another young lady, and she was saying, I don't put my hands on other people's children. We were talking about how kids were disobedient. But those of us who were born back in uh, the 20, or back in uh, the 20th century, there was a time where the neighbor would put their hands on you. What would they do? Oh, Miss Virginia, I got, I got Rodney over here, and honey, let me tell you what he did. Okay? And you know what Miss Virginia would do? She said, so give him a spanking. Okay? So you get a spanking from the neighbor, and then by the time you got home, what would happen? You got another one. <laughs> you got a witness. And that was not unusual. That was the norm. That was the norm. And out of that came Tommy Prices, you know. Out of that came, came me, Brother Lemons, Bert, folks like that. Can't do it today. Because we live in perilous and ferocious times. People don't have that sense of morality. We don't have that sense of community anymore. But, the, but the, what does exist is that disobedience. That disobedience. So as Christians, we as good servants are called to be obedient. In John chapter 14, verse 15, the Bible says, um, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's plain talk. I'm not going to get us lost in the weeds of big paragraphs. I like to keep it simple. If you love me, keep my commandments. That's plain talk. Nothing supernatural or metaphysical about that. The Lord says, if you love me, if you profess to be one of mine, if you are born again, keep my commandments. And then the Bible flips the numbers from John 14, 15 over to John 15, 14 and says the same things. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. Plain talk. 
Jesus Christ is not in the business of making suggestions and recommendations. It's not what he does. He gives commands. And if we are his, we must be obedient to those commands. And it's not a burdensome requirement. If you do what the Lord asks you to do, life goes relatively smooth. It's like being in the center of a hurricane and everything's swirling around you. But you notice that peace that surpasses all understanding? That's what that means. Loved ones will pass away. You have a crazy political race. The taxes are going up. Earthquakes are coming. Tornadoes are flying out of nowhere. Your next door neighbor has a barking dog. The other next door neighbor is blasting the music two or three o'clock in the morning. But you're in the middle of this peace that surpasses all understanding if you do whatsoever he commands you. Good servants are commanded to be obedient. I'm a student of military history. I learned a lot of lessons from studying military history, most of all leadership, uh, command, how men react under stress, and uh, how to have that courage to face those uh, unfathomable odds. And one of the favorite pieces of history uh, took place in 480 uh, before the birth of Christ. And it's the story of the 300 Spartans. And you may have seen the movie, uh, 300. Uh, Back in the 1950s, there was another movie called 300 Spartans. And uh, the key to me uh, in in their story is that 2,500 years later, we're still talking about these guys. 2,500 years later. And in a nutshell, you had 300 Greek soldiers for seven days fought an invading Persian army of about 150,000 soldiers, plus sailors. And they held out until they were betrayed, and they were betrayed, they were circled, then they were massacred to the last man. And we still remember some of their names even to this day. I mean, the commander was King Leonidas of uh, the Spartans. That's how bold and courageous that act was. But the underlying theme in that story is the fact that they were obedient unto death. That's deep. They were obedient unto death. What makes it deep is that they could have run. They could have split. They could have retreated. They knew that the enemy was coming through a secret hidden mountain pass. They had that intelligence. But they decided to stick it out in order to buy time for the Greeks to get ready for this major invasion from what's modern-day Iran. And just before the final battle, Leonidas sent a message back to Sparta. The message said, go tell the Spartans. Here we lie in obedience to your law. They knew they were going to die. So if you ever go to Thermopylae today over in Greece, there's a plaque there that says, go tell the Spartans. Here we lie in obedience to your law. That's what soldiers do. Soldiers follow orders. Sailors follow orders. Airmen follow orders. The United States Marine Corps follow orders. That's our training. Cops follow orders. Shots fired, you don't run the other direction. You run toward the sound of the fire. That's what we do. Firefighters, building on fire, people inside. What do firefighters do? They will take an axe. They will knock a hole in the roof. Flames are shooting out of the roof. They'll kick in the front door. World Trade Center, planes fly to the World Trade Center. What do these guys do? 300, go up, a, go up a flight of stairs. They didn't come down. They're obedient to their training. 
They were obedient to their law. We have a similar story uh, in the United States, uh, down in Texas, when Texas fought for its independence uh, at the Alamo. 187 men fought back in 1836 against thousands of soldiers in the Mexican army. Very disciplined, professional soldiers. You know, this wasn't a bunch of ragtag mobsters showing up. These men were professionals, and they knew how to kill. So we have famous names in American history who died at the Battle of the Alamo, uh, like Davy Crockett, former congressman, uh, frontiersman, Jim Bowie, uh, created the Bowie Knife, Colonel William Travis, he was the commander there. But they willingly surrendered their lives because they were soldiers and they were obedient to their cause. We are called to be soldiers of whom? Christ. Paul told Timothy, endure hardness as a good soldier of Christ. Paul tells us in Ephesians, put on the whole armor of God. We are called to be soldiers. When I was in the Army, I went through uh, airborne school to learn how to jump out of airplanes. And the class after mine, class last, it's a three-week class, two weeks of training, third week, you jump out of the airplane about five times, then you're a paratrooper. Class after mine had the first female to go through jump school. And they didn't change the requirements. They didn't change the training. So if she made it, she made it. If she didn't, she did it. She didn't. And she did make it. She did make it. Because she had a soldier's mentality that she was going to persevere and she wasn't going to give up. And the only way she wasn't going to complete jump training is that they were going to have to drag her out of there on a stretcher. That's how soldiers think to this day. That's how soldiers think. That's how we should be in our obedience to Christ. We should obey his commands, and we should be stalwart in our obedience to Jesus Christ. We want to complain about aches. We want to complain about pains. We want to complain about the way people treat us, what somebody said to me, the way they looked at me. That's a waste of your time and your energy. You know, Because they're not thinking about you. <laughs> they may have said something to you to really hurt your feelings. Okay? And you think five minutes later they're walking around saying, man, I really hurt her feelings. Not even thinking about it. They moved on to the next thing. So we need to learn how to endure hardness as a good soldier of Christ. How do you do that? You're obedient. A good servant is obedient to the commandments of Christ. We follow his example. When he was reviled, he reviled not. Amen? When he was threatened, he threatened not. That's what those words mean. And they need to be applied to your Christianity. So first, a good servant surrenders to the will of God. Finally, secondly, a good servant is obedient. And thirdly and finally, a good servant has uh, a living faith. Uh, James chapter 2, very familiar passage. James chapter 2, verse 17. And the Bible, already up on the screen, it says, as my page is turned, James chapter 2, verse 17. I'm old school when it comes to this stuff. I'm a 20th century guy in a 21st century world, so... Amen. <laughs> but it's all good. James chapter 2, verse 17, in conclusion. My Bible says, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Then James has an interesting conversation. This is James is the brother of our Lord. And in this conversation, he says, yea, a man may say, thou hast faith, James, and I have works. James replies, show me thy faith without works. And I will show thee my faith by my works. Here's his point. Verse 19, thou believest that there is one God. You do well. 
But he also says the demons believe that there is one God. But they tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead. So we're saved by faith. But James is saying the evidence of our salvation by faith is works. Faith without works is dead. We don't do works in order to be saved. You've heard that preached before. I spent seven years preaching, conducting marriages, conducting funerals, going out soul winning, attending a Bible-believing fundamentalist Baptist church with my big black Schofield Bible, my black shirt, my black suit, white shirt, and black tie, preaching week after week after week, lost as lost could be, because I had never trusted Jesus Christ. I walked the aisle, I committed myself to the church, I committed myself to Christ, but I had never had a life-changing personal experience with Jesus that took me from religion to faith. I believed I was a good person. I believed God loved me. I believed that God had protected me in a number of situations. I believed God had delivered me from situations, and he did. But I had never trusted Jesus Christ to forgive my sins. I trusted religion. I trusted what I read in the Bible. I had read the Testament from Matthew to Revelation. My mom gave me a Bible just before I went into the army. I read it cover to cover. But still, did not make that jump, that conversion from death to life through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Then after living this religious but lost existence, a pastor walked up to me one day and he says, Rod, I don't think you're saved. Why? Because my Christian facade started cracking. I had a secret thought life. I had secret sins going on. And that, that starts oozing out of your pores after a while. You ever been around somebody who's drank a lot of alcohol? Maybe not you young folks, but when you're in college and all that stuff, you know, or in the military, you're around folks who drink a lot of alcohol the night before, then on Sunday you can still smell it coming out of their pores. That's how sin is. That's how sin is. It stinks. It has a terrible odor to it. So if a person is practicing sin, pornography, alcohol, drugs, hatred, anger, violence, any sin, it begins to ooze out of the pores. And anyone with any discernment at all from the Holy Spirit can see and sense that that person is not right with God. So our faith needs to be a living faith. It needs to be evidenced not only by faith, but by works. The works don't save us. Faith in Jesus and Jesus only saves us. But the evidence of that salvation is or are the works that we do. Sharing the gospel, passing out tracts, regular church attendance, being here on Wednesday night, coming back for the evening service. That's what manifestations of faith are. Doesn't save the soul, doesn't get you in a better place with God, but it's evidence that God has done something supernatural in your life. So James is basically telling us that we need to live a life that has a living faith to it. Hallelujah if you're saved, but put some feet to that salvation. Let's see some works uh, that go along with that faith. Look for opportunities to be a service. Look for opportunities to be a servant of God. Somebody needs a ride? Be that guy. Be that girl that offers that ride. And it'll hold me to political correctness. Be that guy, be that girl. Look for an opportunity 
to be of service. Look for an opportunity to surrender your, your will. Look for an opportunity to be obedient. Look for an opportunity to live a life that reflects a living faith. How did I get saved? Well, one of the means of grace was my wife. I went two and a half years fighting against God. I blamed him for my not being saved. Oh, God, you're a racist. It's a white Jesus. I'm shaking my little puny fist at heaven. Two and a half years. Racism. All that. Because I was a sinner, wallowing around, you know, in the mud, trying to justify why I went to church every day faithfully. I mean, six days out of the week, I was working for the church. I had one day off. And that was before I was put on staff. Six days working for the church. And Brother Price can tell you what that existence was like. All in the flesh. Grinding it out for Jesus. But then that sin nature begins to ooze out. Now, it was my wife who God used as a means of grace. During that two and a half year period where I'm fighting with God, she never gave me any reason to hate Jesus. She's a great mother, great wife, took care of all the responsibilities around the house, attended church faithfully. She never nagged at me. And there was a time where I tried to drop out and not go to church anymore. Oh, that doesn't work. God says, get, get up, let's go. <clears throat> Got something for you to hear. Get it. So eventually, you know, that rebellious spirit was broken. But God used my wife and her consistent faith. So I've seen it personally. I didn't hear the gospel until I was 28 years old. I didn't grow up in the church. So I'm not a you know, Sunday school kid or missionary kid or pastor's kid and any of that stuff. And then the uh, first time I heard the gospel, I saw it as a commitment to God and a commitment to the church. So that's what I made as opposed to a surrender and a trusting him as Lord and Savior. So he let me go through that period, but he showed me what grace looks like. He showed me what mercy looks like through my wife and other, other Christians in the church. And finally, a pastor sat me down and opened the scripture up and showed me a passage out of Romans about while I was yet a sinner, you know, Christ uh, loved me and he died for me. And I just, that was, the, that was the word that pierced my heart. So I gave my life to Jesus Christ, made my Lord and Savior, and never looked back. That's what a living faith does. That's what it looks like. Lives change. So we need to look for opportunities to share that gospel. Might be another Brother Brooks out there, religious but lost. Or there might be some rock gut sinner out here that you wouldn't speak to on a, on a, on a normal basis. Just filthy, dirty, reeking. That's the guy or the girl that you hand that track to. That's the one that you say good morning. Or maybe put a dollar bill with that track or two dollars with that track and give them something to read and Maybe they'll go out and get a meal later on. That's a living faith. Look for opportunities to serve. Look for opportunities to be of service. So today we've called, talked about a call to service. First, uh, a good servant surrenders to the will of God. A good servant is obedient. A good servant has a living, active faith. 
appreciate you bearing with me this morning. Uh, yesterday was a pretty long day, a long evening for us. But God is uh, gracious and God is merciful. And you are here today, which blesses my heart. Now, if you need to live a life of surrender, if you need to live a life of obedience, if you need to live a life of a living faith, now's a good time to make peace with God through Jesus Christ. For those of you with us for the first time, this is called an invitation. And maybe you made a commitment to the church, but you never surrendered to Jesus Christ. Maybe you've never been born again. The Bible says ye must be born again. Ye must have a new life created by the Holy Spirit, by God, through Jesus Christ. He's not asking you to stand up and give a testimony. He's not asking you to preach a message. He's not asking you to stand up here and sing a special like the ladies did. He's not asking you to give money to the church. All he's asking you to do is surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Trust him to forgive your sins. Trust him to make a place for you in heaven. Trust him to give you evidence of a new life and a new faith, a lively, active faith. 